And um, my voice does have a tendency to get soft and drift sometimes. And if that should happen during the talk, I invite you to give me a signal. Don't be shy. That means it's too soft. I can't hear you. It's perfectly fine. I welcome it. It's much better than you t that you do this um, than afterwards telling me, I didn't hear a word of what you said. Can you repeat the talk? So please feel, feel welcome to do that. So, okay, great. Good evening. <sighs> How are you? So it's the um, it's Saturday today. It's the end of the third full day of practice. Um, and just to to review the arc so far, we started the first day with a full day of mindfulness practice. Even though it is a meta retreat, we started with a day of mindfulness to ground ourselves and to land. And then yesterday, with Sharon's beautiful exposition, we started with the practice of metta for self and the benefactor. And um, today, with Winnie's skillful leading, we expanded the concentric circle uh, to include the dear friend. And also last night, you heard from Winnie about hindrances, which are experiences that arise as part of the practice. They just do, right on, right on time when they come up. They just do and there are opportunities to learn. So. so tonight, I'll be talking about the four Brahma-viharas, um, which metta is one of the four practices, and the, in the Theravada practice, in Theravada tradition, um, is, the central, is the central of the four practices. I'll talk more about that. And then I'll spend uh, much of the time, actually, tonight, talking about uh, the practice of compassion, which is the second of the four uh, Brahma-viharas, metta being the first one, compassion being the second one. So that's our journey, planned journey for tonight. We'll see how it goes, okay? So before that, I wanted to tell you just a little bit about my relationship and background to metta and compassion practice um, so you get a sense of where I'm coming from. So I dedicated about one year of my practice um, to metta and compassion cultivation uh, a few years ago, in around 2013 actually, and that's the time um, I was going through a training at Stanford, um, which is the Compassion Cultivation Training. It's a curriculum um, developed by Tipton Jumpa, um, His Holiness Dalai Lama's translator and other neuroscientists, etc., um, which is an uh, eight-week course. It's a secular course that's drawn heavily from the Tibetan practices and Theravada practices, too of loving kindness and compassion practice. So that's the year that I was doing compassion and loving kindness practice pretty intensely as, as my own practice, which I had wanted to anyway for a long time, but it was a good excuse to dedicate that year. And also, I've spent time on retreat like yourself, spent a month of doing intense Brahma Viharas um, as a concentration practice, which I'll talk about more. 
um, as um, leading to absorption and states of jhana, etc., that you might have heard about. I can say a little more about those also. And um, and for me, practice of compassion, especially self-compassion, has been one of my main practices. I have a chronic illness, and self-compassion has been one of the main ways that I work with it. Otherwise, it's it's almost impossible. So it really hits home for me, this practice of compassion and self-compassion. It's, it's, it's a dear practice to me. It, it, yeah, so, so it's, it's my joy to be sharing that with you tonight from, from all of those places. So the Brahma Viharas, translated as sublime attitudes or the abodes of Brahma, literally, Brahma means gods or the heavenly. Um, and the vihara is a word, word for abode or dwelling. So Brahma vihara is heavenly abodes, heavenly dwellings, realm of the gods. And they're also translated as the four immeasurables in Pali. And according to the Metta Sutta, the Buddha said that the cultivation of the four immeasurables has the power to cause the practitioner to be born in the Brahma realm, if, if you believe in, in rebirth. And if you don't believe in rebirth, the way that I have to say I've experienced in this very life, um, the Brahma Viharas, is, is it, it feels like being in the heavenly realm. I remember that when I did that intense retreat um, for a month, I got it. I, un- I understood for the first time what they meant, uh, what, what the Buddha meant as the, the, um, the heavenly abodes, because it, it felt like the, the, I mean, not that every moment of the retreat was easy, definitely not. I'm not giving you that impression. But in general, when the practice cooks, when the practice is cooking, any of the four immeasurables, any of the four Brahma Viharas, the mind is at peace and ease, and it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful state. It's a beautiful state as it's the closest I feel I've got to heaven on earth is practicing the Brahma Viharas. Um, so it, it makes sense to me, and I hope it makes sense to you, at least in moments here and there where you are dwelling in, for that moment, for that fleeting moment perhaps, or maybe the few minutes in that heavenly realm of the of the Brahma Viharas when the mind is really immersed in it. So in the Theravada tradition, as I mentioned, the uh, the practice of metta loving kindness is the central one, is the one that the other ones um, relate to, come out of, and I'll explain that in a moment. So, so metta, a sense of goodwill, friendliness, um, kindness, feeling of love without expectation or clinging, a feeling of warmth, basically goodwill, that, that just very simple friendliness, goodwill, not very complicated. So this attitude of loving-kindness or, or metta, when 
when it reaches different beings, beings in different states, it gets expressed in different ways. So metta, or this friendliness, um, is the expression of this goodwill for a being, which could be someone else or yourself, who's in a neutral state. May you be well, may you be happy, may you be safe, etc. Now the same feeling of goodwill, the same friendliness, when it comes across someone who is suffering, it becomes compassion. It gets expressed as compassion. Because at that point, it's both holding the suffering and um, the, the goodwill is holding the suffering. So it's both. And compassion is that, which I will talk a lot more about tonight. When this feeling of metta, this goodwill, this friendliness, this general friendliness, it comes across someone who's in, in a good state, not in a suffering state, but in a good state, in a happy state. They, they're, they're doing really well. They, they always wanted to get married. They just got married. They, they won the lottery or, or whatever. They wanted a child. They have a child. They're, they're just really happy. Their life is flowing. When, when that feeling of friendliness comes, uh, this feeling of metta in your heart, comes across a being who's doing really well, it gets expressed as mudita, vicarious joy, sympathetic joy, which is the third of the four Brahma-viharas. And then the practice becomes, may your good fortune continue, may it never cease, may it never end, may it continue. There's just happiness for other people's happiness. Whereas in comparison, in the second Brahma-vihara, um, in the case of, of um, karuna or, or compassion, um, it gets expressed as, may you be free from your suffering. May you hold your suffering with ease. That's how this good w- goodwill gets expressed. Clear so far? Yeah? Okay. So the last one, the last of the four, being equanimity, upeka, um, there are a couple of ways to hold it. One is that equanimity, um, actually let me define it just, just to be clear. So equanimity is, is um, a state of, well actually that the word itself is, is seeing from, having a bird's eye view, having an overview, seeing from afar. So having the big picture. You know when you have the big picture, you don't get moved as much. Ah, you have the big picture. There is this stability. There's stability of equanimity when you have see the bigger picture. So the, so the word itself relates to that, having the bird's eye perspective, not being caught, the word upeka. And in the words of Venerable Nyana, uh, Nyana Tera, equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. So the way, to, to, the way it relates to other Brahma-viharas, equanimity, is that it could be seen as the bedrock that holds all of the other ones. It's the bedrock. It's that stability. It's that, um, it's that view, that bird's-eye view, is that whole holistic view that holds everything else in balance, all of these practices in balance. Another way that it's also held uh, in, in some teachings is that when this, um, the metta comes across to overwhelming suffering, 
That's so overwhelming. The wise response is to hold it with equanimity, not to fall into it, not to, to get to to be aversive to it, but just hold it, just hold it with stability, with an unshakable balance of mind. And I like both of those interpretations. And in my practice, um, I've seen both, which again, I'll, I'll talk a little more about when I get to, to the section about, um, to talk more about um, uh, karuna, about compassion. So, these practices, as we've mentioned, um, the Brahma Viharas, um, Metta specifically, as we've been practicing, uh, they are practiced both as a cultivation of the heart um, as well as a concentration practice. So what do we mean by that when we say that? So the word concentration itself is a little tricky. I think when we use it in the Western culture, it brings about a furrowed mind, a furrowed eyebrow, and you're really trying hard and you're concentrating. Um, a better translation of the word samadhi, which is often translated as, as um, concentration, is unification of the mind. So samadhi, unification of the mind. So metta, the brahma-viharas, are practices through that repetition, through staying with one object, one object, repeating the phrases, staying with one object, staying with the benefactor, the whole day, for example, the whole few days, the whole week, there is this. Con- the mind gets very, very steady with the phrases, with that staying at the object, and that steadiness unifies the mind, calms the mind. Um, really, um, it, it brings about concentration of the mind. It brings up a state of um, samadhi. It's a practice of samatha. And when practiced intensely, it can lead to states of absorption known as jhanas, um, which are states where the mind can be very still, very unified, quite happy and delighted not to move from the object at all and absorbed on the object. And in your practice, you can experiment actually, if you stay with one category with one person in one category and not move so much. Um, of course, there are other things that might come up which might you might need to work with. Boredom can come up. Various other hindrances can come up. But when there's skillful navigation of all this, and the mind can happily find a way to stay with with one object, with one being, with one person, you might see that the mind actually gets quite settled and calm may not want to go anywhere else, might find a lot of joy just continuing to wish well for that object. And when I say object, I mean a being, person, could be yourself or someone else in this, in this particular practice. Brahma Viharas are, are also practice of cultivation. They're not a practice of coercion or creation. We all have this goodwill, this friendliness as our birthright. We all have it. There there are various research studies, actually, which I won't get into, but we we all have it. We all have it in one way or another. It might be covered over. So the practice of cultivation is to rekindle, to actually 
there is a little fire that we can see it's there. Maybe it's easiest to feel that friendliness, that care, that warmth perhaps with our easy person, with our dear dear friend or with our benefactor or, or maybe with a pet, with, with, with a child. If you have a teenager, maybe when they were a child, maybe when they were little before it got complicated. Um, so maybe that's how, oh, you feel that feeling of warmth, that care. There's a little kindling of fire. And in this practice, we, we add more fuel to it, more wise fuel to it, and, and bring it out, bring it out more and more so that it becomes the, the reflexive response of the heart to every situation, to all beings, including ourselves. The practice is not one of um, magical thinking, thinking that our wishes for well-being of another person is going to magically heal them or make them happy. That's not the practice. There are other practices out there that are positive thinking or, or healing from afar. This is not that. What this is, is a really cultivation of your own heart. You're doing this practice for yourself. And when we say you pra- you're doing this practice for other beings and yourself, what we mean isn't that you're healing them from afar. What we mean is that by your heart getting transformed, by you becoming transformed, the lives of everyone around you gets affected. because of interdependence. And just to briefly mention, there was a longitudinal research study um, showing that when one person's level of happiness increased, three circles out, the levels of happiness increased. And I bet if the researchers could measure more circles out, they would have seen more interdependence. but if you, when you change, when your heart, the cultivation of your heart is more towards friendliness to yourself and others, people in your life get affected. People in their lives get affected. People in their lives get affected. Three circles out. Pretty staggering, isn't it? Pretty wild. So that's the way you're doing this practice, not just for yourself, but for all beings. If researchers could include all beings in their research study, not just three circles out. So I briefly wanted to mention before moving on um, some classical teachings about the near and far enemies of these four Brahma Viharas, which many of you have may, may have heard of already. But I just wanted to bring it in for those who may not have heard them, and you might run into them um, as you're practicing. Just to know that they're part of the practice, they're part of the purification cycle. There's, there's the purification, purifying cycles that can happen when, when you're doing the metta practice and all of a sudden its opposite comes up. Like, whoa, where did this come from? I didn't order any anger and ill will. It's just part of the purification practice. It's okay. Working with that. Working with that. You are not doing it wrong. It's, it's all part of the quote-unquote script. So the near enemy is the quality 
that masquerades as the original, but it's not the original. But it's kind of close. So you might actually be going along practicing that way, thinking, oh yeah, I'm practicing. And then realize, whoa, this doesn't quite feel right. So that might be the near enemy. I'll explain in a moment. The far enemy is easy. It's just the opposite quality. It's the complete opposite. So for loving kindness, metta, the near enemy is attachment. Is when that feeling of wanting results, really wanting this person to be happy, or really wanting them to love you back, or really wanting this, or really wanting that. In that case, it's not love without attachment, love without strings attached, it's love with, with strings attached. So that's the near enemy. Notice if that comes up or has come up in your practice. It's okay, it's fine, just notice it. No need to slap yourself, it can come up. Just notice, oh, that's what's happening. This is the kind of relationship that's coming up right now. The far enemy of metta is hatred, anger, ill will. And again, it can come up when you least expect it. It can come up, as mentioned, when you're, um, for example, doing metta for your benefactor and you remember that one time when they weren't there for you. Ah, it can break up anger. Or it can come up when in the hall someone else is moving or shifting or coughing or they're choking and they're opening a, a little cough drop and, and this anger and ill will comes up in your mind. How dare you make noise? I'm developing friendliness. <laughs> So notice the opportunities for developing friendliness are right there. May you be happy, the person who's having pain right now and shifting in your chair, the person who's choking and coughing and need, needs a cough drop, or from, for some reason you can't stay anymore. Maybe there's an urgency in the body, you have to leave the hall. Just take all these opportunities as, as practice. They're all around you. When we talk about developing metta, and friendliness towards everything and everyone, all of these are included. So check in with the mind. The second Brahma Vihara, compassion, karuna. I'll actually talk about the near enemy and far enemy in a moment um, in more detail. So I'll move on to sympathetic joy. Mudita, which is the joy in the good fortune of others. And the near enemy, um, and I'll just speak about these a little bit and, and they'll be talked about more actually in the coming um, days. The near enemy is comparison, hypocrisy, insincerity, or it's a joy for others that's tinged with identification. My team, my child. So again, there's the, that attachment with it. And the far enemy of it, which is pretty easy to recognize, is envy when you want what the other person, the, the, the good fortune the other person has, and, and there's a feeling of scarcity and tightness comes out. With upekka, equanimity, um, the near enemy which one can fall into is a feeling of indifference. Just the, the, the mind can feel so, so cool that couldn't care less, and that is not equanimity. Equanimity is, is a stability, is it has a tinge of warmth to it that holds everything. It's not moved, but it holds everything with a sense of care, whereas indifference is, ah, 
I, it's, I don't want to be bothered. The far enemy of equanimity, um, a couple of things. One is anxiety, complete overwhelm. It's just too much. And the other one is, the opposite of it is greed, falling into it, wanting, wanting it so much, or resentment, like, whoa, make it go away. And it's not, again, it's not that stability of really being with it all and holding it all with, um, with, um, with, with, with really stability, the word that comes to mind. So, compassion, karuna. So, what is compassion? Just so that we're on the same page. As, a, as an academic, it's important to, for me to get our operational definition straight. So we have clarity. So, um, being with suffering with an authentic wish for its alleviation. So it's both a stance, attitude, and a formal practice. Another way to think of it is compassion is the tender readiness of the heart to respond to one's own or another's pain without grief or resentment or aversion. And you've seen that definition, without grief, resentment, or or aversion, is the equanimity, right? Is that stability. So for me, experientially practicing compassion on the cushion, especially exploring it um, intensely during that that uh, period of uh, retreat practice, it has... It had three aspects to it, really three prominent aspects. I, two, two parts of the three, quite prominent, one more subtle, like the platform that was holding it. The two aspects, one was tapping into the suffering, the feeling, the suffering, feeling that, ouch, this is hard. The acknowledgement that this is painful, this is not easy, whether it's my my pain or somebody else's pain. And it's especially important, actually, in self-compassion because we tend to, to ignore and belittle our own pain. Oh, this is nothing. Oh, yeah. Um, whereas just acknowledging this is hard, this is painful. That's one aspect of it. The second prominent aspect is really that metta, is that sense of goodwill, warmth, affection, is that kindness of the heart that balances the suffering. The third aspect was really that equanimity that I hadn't seen before, but became really clear to me. That was really the bedrock that was holding both the suffering and the care, the metta for it, in balance, not tipping into it, not tipping out of it, just a stable bedrock to hold both. And what's actually interesting is that neuroscience supports um, exactly how this practice is experienced as as we practice it. I want to bring in briefly one study by Klimeki et al. from 2012 where 
they saw two areas of the brain light up, corresponding to the two areas I was talking to. One area is the neural network that, that uh, corresponds to empathy for pain. So it's the mirror neurons that either when you have pain yourself, when you stub your foot or when you're hurt, that area of the brain, the pain area, pain, 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 or when you see somebody else in pain, that's the area that lights up. So that's the pain area, ouch. That's holding the pain. The second area that lights up while doing compassion meditation in fMRI, which is what this experiment was with with experienced practitioners, sorry I forgot to say that, um, is is actually the area of the brain that shows up is uh, affiliated with positive affect, positive emotions, and affiliation, filial feelings, connection, warmth. So both of these light up, not just one. And there's an anecdotal um, story I remember um, Tanya Singer was, was talking about when she was doing, doing a study with Matthew Ricard, who's the well-known, um, uh, he's been a well-known monk, he's been a translator for His Holiness, neurobiologist, and um, apparently Matthew Ricard is in the um, fMRI machine, and, and Tanya asks him, okay, just don't do a full compassion meditation, just contemplate the suffering. Just, I want to see what parts of your brain light up. So they go through the experiment. He's just contemplating the suffering, not doing the full compassion meditation, just suffering. And then she brings him out of the fMRI machine and he says, oh, I feel terrible. Can you put me back in there? This feels awful. Like, oh, ouch. It's just a lot of pain, overwhelmed with suffering. So she says, okay, puts him back in the machine. He, he does the full uh, compassion meditation, thereby lighting up not just the pain areas, but also the, the warmth, care, uh, really the, the, um, the meta area, the filial. So these two parts both light up, and then he comes back. Okay, feels a lot better. So that is a way that actually compassion meditation feels good when you do it. It's, it when you don't tip into the overwhelm, when, you, when the mind doesn't tip into the pain, um, it actually, holding both of those, hold, holding the suffering with care, it actually, it is the Brahma-vihara. It is dwelling in the realm of the gods. So what compassion is not, what the near enemies of it are, um, one is grief or sympathetic distress, overwhelm, anguish. And a lot of people, when they talk about compassion, they say, oh, I, I, it's too, too much, I can't be compassionate, or I can't do compassion meditation because it's just too painful. And actually, the, what's happening is it's near enemy. It's that immersion or identification with the other person's suffering without enough of the metta, with, with enough of the metta, the friendliness, the warmth, the care, to balance that, balance that, that painful feeling. Another near enemy is pity. And that is kind of a comparative feeling of less than 
oh, poor you, you're going through such a hard time. That would never happen to me. I feel sorry for you. Um, it creates a sense of separatedness and distance. It gratifies our ego, that near enemy of pity. Oh, poor them. Instead of, this could be me. I suffer in the same way. Compassion also isn't empathy alone. Empathy is an aspect of it, but it's not the entire picture. Empathy is an aspect of it. But again, that, that um, empathy alone can make us fall into sympathetic distress or anguish without that warmth or care of holding the suffering, that goodwill, that, that warmth of the heart. The far enemy of compassion is pretty clear. It's cruelty. May you continue to suffer. That is pretty clear to recognize, I think. Um, Even though actually, maybe sometimes not. Sometimes it may not be so easy to recognize in, in our daily life, perhaps, that, oh, wow, we're actually being cruel. We're actually having cruel wishes. <gasps> Again, it can come up in the mind, just see it. It's seeing it in that moment is a way to recognize and disarm it. Because none of us intentionally would want to be cruel, but it, sometimes it can go unnoticed. The other far enemy is schadenfreude, happiness at the misfortune of others. So, so why practice? Why practice compassion? Why practice metta? Why practice the Brahma-viharas? Why? Why are we here? I know you've already contemplated this quite a bit. <laughs> what am I doing here? which might have had a different tone from, from the time you signed up for the retreat. <laughs> oh, yes, this is where, why I'm going there. All right, just to remind you why, you're, you, why you think you're, why you signed up. So um, I'll first share the, the 11 benefits of practicing metta, uh, loving-kindness meditation that Sharon referred to. This is uh, from Anguttara Nikaya 11.16. And it's a beautiful list. Are you ready? Okay. Let, let yourself bask. Okay. Just let it wash over you. Okay. Number one, you will sleep easily. <laughs> Maybe not yet. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> you will wake easily. You will have pleasant dreams. People will love you. (laughs) Devas, it means gods or angels, and animals will love you. Devas will protect you. External dangers such as poisons, weapons, and fire will not harm you. This one I'm not so sure about. (laughs) I wouldn't experiment. I'm sure there is an interpretation, but don't try this at home yet. Your face will be radiant. This, this one is definitely true. Your mind will be serene. This too, I can attest to personally. You will, un, you will die unconfused. This one I don't know yet. <laughs> but I hear to be true. 
I look forward to it. And it's a big one, actually, to die unconfused. It's a big one. And number 11, you will be reborn in happy realms. Mm. And I like to think of that, whether it's happy realms in the next life or in this life. You'll be living in a happier realm. So, the Brahma Viharas are the path to happiness in, in this realm, in this life. The Dalai Lama says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. And nowadays, there are so many research studies also. As, as you can tell, I, 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 I'm an academic scientist, so it, it's part of me to bring in a few studies, so humor me. So there are a lot of studies nowadays actually um, suggesting that the practice of, of uh, metta, loving-kindness practice, as a formal practice, as well as compassion practice, um, they're conducive to happiness, well-being, they have psycho- psychological benefits, physiological changes, uh, resilience to stress, immune response, I especially like that study, um, social connection, reducing self-criticism, decreasing chronic pain. So there are a lot of various things that are, I mean, as, as a contemplative practitioner, I already know that. We already know that, right? We don't really need science to say that, but it's kind of nice to hear it anyway. Um, it is true. And... One interesting thing also is that compassion for others uh, and metta for others um, is a path to happiness and well-being as um, metta and compassion, all the Brahma Viharas, broadens our perspective beyond ourselves. And depression and anxiety is often linked to state of self-focus, a preoccupation with me, myself, and I, with that I, that atta, self. And when we do something for someone else, whether you're wishing them well, um, you are practicing compassion or mudita, vicarious joy for them, it brings one from a state of self-focus to a state of other focus. And, for example, you might have noticed that if you're feeling down and suddenly a close friend or relative calls you and asks you for help, urgent help, then your mood completely shifts. You go from being blue to feeling energized to help because it gives you perspective in your own situation. So practicing the Brahma Viharas for others, it really it can shift that that the state of self-focus to other focus and help in that way also. It's also in alignment with our highest intentions. I mean, putting aside all the reasons, you know, you'll be happier, you'll be healthier, you'll have less pain, less chronic illness, whatever, all of those. All of those aside, all of those worldly gains aside, let's just push those aside for a moment and think about our highest intentions as human beings in this life. It's short. 
what do we want to do here? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? What kind of a human being do you want to have been? I've lived, I've walked on this planet. Who do you really want to be in this life? Jack Cornfield says in A Path with Heart, in the stress and complexity of our lives, we may forget our deepest intentions. But when people come to the end of their life and look back, the question that they most often ask are not usually how much is in my bank account or how many books did I write or what did I build or the like. If you have the privilege of being with a person who is aware at the time of his or her death, you find the questions such a person asks are very simple. Did I love well? Did I live fully? Did I learn to let go? So being here, giving your time, giving your life, dedicating yourself to this practice is a preparation. Did I love well? You're trying to love well. You're trying to cultivate your heart to love well, to love others well, to love yourself well. It's a cultivation. This practice also has quite profound implications, not just for ourselves, but as an affirmation of our place in the universe, our relationship, our interconnection with all things in what Einstein calls the friendly universe. I quote him. The most important question you can ever ask is if the world is a friendly place. For if we decide that the universe is an unfriendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to achieve safety and power by creating bigger walls to keep out the unfriendliness and bigger weapons to destroy all that which is unfriendly And I believe that we are getting to a place where technology is powerful enough that we may either completely isolate or destroy ourselves as well in this process. If we decide that the universe is neither friendly nor unfriendly and that God is essentially playing dice with the universe, then we are simply victims to the random toss of the dice and our lives have no real purpose or meaning. But if we decide that the universe is a friendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to create tools and models for understanding that universe. Because power and safety will come through understanding its workings and its motives. So for me, this practice of metta is really a stance this practice of the Brahma Viharas is really a fundamental stance that we take, affirming a friendly universe and the attitude that we take to our life and our position with everything that we do. Whether we consider it unfriendly and destroy everyone and ourselves in the process or feel that it's 
a dice being played and there is no real purpose or meaning or it's a, or it's a friendly universe and we have a place in it. Kindness, metta, love, compassion. It's the only response that really makes sense. If we didn't have any delusion or dust in our eyes, and if we had vast wisdom and compassion, we would see that. That's the only thing that makes sense, the only response that really makes sense. I'd like to share something from the Tibetan teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche, who left on a three-year retreat in June 2011. And he just left. He, he was teaching a lot. He was a very sought-after teacher. And in the middle of the night, he just left. Apparently, he didn't even take his passport. He just left to, to go live as a mendicant and really practice in, in, in that life without, without any support. And nobody know, knew his whereabouts for, for over three years. And some, sometime in January 2014, someone ran into him who recognized him and spent some time with him. And this is a letter that he sent back um, to his mother um, from, it was a longer letter, so I'll just read you one paragraph of it, of what his experience had been. I myself am wandering without any fixed location, staying in isolated mountain hermitages and other such places. I have experienced feelings of happiness and suffering, rising and falling like waves on the surface of the ocean. At times, food and clothing have been hard to come by and I have felt cold, hungry, and thirsty. Even when I have begged for alms, I receive nothing by insults and harsh words. At other times, I've received food and clothing effortlessly, without even asking for them. And in my mind, it felt as though I was enjoying the pleasures of the gods. While I have experienced both happiness and suffering, the most important thing is that a deep and heartfelt sense of certainty has arisen in the depths of my being, such that no matter what happens, I know that the true nature of these experiences, their very essence, is that of timeless awareness and vast compassion. true nature of these experiences, their very essence, is that of timeless awareness and vast compassion. So practicing here, practicing the Brahma-viharas, practicing metta, it's often hardest for ourselves. Have you noticed? practicing metta, many people brought it up in the meetings, that practicing metta for others seems easier, but when they turn it to themselves, it seems harder. It's not unusual, unfortunately. I think especially in the West, it's really sometimes hard for us so what to do? What to do? 
practicing self-care, self-metta, self-compassion. For some, a voice comes up that I don't deserve this. Other people deserve it, but I don't deserve this. So if you, if that voice comes up for you, if you're one of those people who, for example, were doing the beautiful practice that Sharon was leading, receiving metta, receiving, soaking in metta from a benefactor, and if that voice came up, oh, I don't deserve this, this is not right, it doesn't feel right, or something physical comes up. Hear the voice, and hear that it's just a thought. You don't have to believe it. And regardless of whether or not you feel you deserve it, let it come through your body anyway. Soak it physically. So you can have the mental list still. Yeah, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it because of reason number one, number two, number three, number four. But physically, still soak it. Allow it to come in. Christine Neff says she's found in her research that the biggest reason people aren't self-compassionate is that they're afraid they'll become self-indulgent. And they think that actually, they believe falsely that self-criticism is what keeps them in line. And that they've gotten, um, but she says they've gotten it wrong. It's basically because the culture says being hard on yourself is the way to be. It's not the way to be. You have to start with yourself. You have to. Developing compassion, developing metta for yourself. The Buddha says if you look all around the world, you won't find anyone more deserving of your own metta, of your own care and love than yourself. One thing that helped me with, with this particular practice is something a little far out, but I'll share with you anyway. So, so I've had an interest in reading various accounts of people having near-death experiences. Um, and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of accounts of people who went through surgery or, or, or drowned, um, or, ha- or their heart stopped um, um, for a while and they had a near-death experience, NDE, they're called the lingo, and, and then their heart started again, um, maybe they were, they were saved, when, um, so in some way they came back to life, um, even though they were clinically perhaps dead for a few seconds, or even in the case for minutes, they were clinically dead. And and reading them with a don't-know mind, who knows, right? Who knows what really is happening, what that edge is. But one thing that I found really remar- remarkable, again, with a don't-know mind, who knows, but something that I found really similar in all of these accounts reading 
is no matter whether what what their the background of the people is, what, what their religion is, what their belief system is, in some way, you know, they describe a tunnel, but what they really also describe is being completely engulfed and held by a loving force that completely holds them regardless of any feelings they have. It completely suffuses them with care and love. Some describe it as a being of light, that they're completely engulfed by the care and love and compassion of a being of light, completely suffused, feeling completely accepted, completely loved. So sometimes when I am doing a practice of receiving, this is how, how I imagine it, that it's not a choice. I'm being completely suffused. I'm receiving this love in the universe that's available for me. And that sometimes helps with developing this self-compassion, self-care, self-metta, and then joining my voice in. So I offer that to you. I'd like to share a quote by Anita Morjani, who actually had one of these near-death experiences and talks about it very eloquently in her book. In my ND state, I realized that the entire universe is composed of unconditional love, and I am an expression of this. Every atom, molecule, molecule, quark, tetraquark is made of love. I can be nothing else because this is my essence and the nature of the entire universe. Even things that seem negative are all part of the infinite, unconditional spectrum of love. So compassion, metta, for ourselves. And also metta, self, and compassion for others. It's really that the idea of common humanity, the interconnectedness, what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing, just like me, that makes that flow, helps that flow. In closing, I'd like to share a little letter written um, by, by someone. It's actually a letter of gratitude, of compassion, that she received from total strangers. And I invite you to just sit and let this wash over you. This is by Deborah Green, and it's titled, To the Strangers in Whole Foods Who Surrounded Me After News of My Father's Suicide. Dear strangers, I remember you. Ten months ago when my cell phone rang with news of my father's suicide, you were walking into Whole Foods prepared to go about your food shopping, just as I had done only minutes before. But I had already abandoned my cart full of groceries, and I stood in the entryway of the store. My brother was on the other end of the line. He was telling me my father was dead, that he had taken his own life early that morning, and through his own sobs, I remember my brother kept saying, I am sorry, Deborah, I am so sorry. I can't imagine how it must have felt for him to make that call. As we hung up the phone, I started to cry and scream as my whole body trembled. This just couldn't be true. It couldn't be happening. Only moments before, I was filling my cart with groceries, going about my errands on a normal Monday morning, 
Only moments before, my life felt intact. Overwhelmed with emotions, I fell to the floor, my knees buckling under the weight of what I had just learned. And you kind strangers, you were there. You could have kept on walking, ignoring my cries, but you didn't. You could have simply stopped and stared at my primal display of pain, but you didn't. No, instead you surrounded me as I yelled through my sobs. My father killed himself. He killed himself. He's dead. And the question that has plagued me since that moment came to my lips in a scream. Why? I must have asked it over and over again. I remember in the haze of emotions, one of you asked for my phone number and asked who you should call. What was my password? You needed my husband's name as you searched through my contacts. I remember I could hear your words as you tried to reach my husband for me, leaving an urgent message for him to call me. I recall hearing you discuss amongst yourselves who would drive me home in my car and who would follow that person to bring them back to the store. You didn't even know one another, but it didn't seem to matter. You encountered me, a stranger, in the worst moment of my life, and you coalesced around me with common purpose to help. I remember one of you asking if you could pray for me and for my father. I must have said yes. And now when I recall that Christian prayer being offered up to Jesus from my Jewish father and me, it still both brings tears to my eyes and makes me smile. In my fog, I told you that I had a friend, Pam, who worked at Whole Foods, and one of you went in search of her. Thankfully, she was there that morning, and you brought her to me. I remember the relief I felt at seeing her face, familiar and warm. She took me to the back, comforting and caring for me until my husband could get to me. And I even recall, as I sat with her, one of you sent back a gift card to Whole Foods. Though you didn't know me, you wanted to offer a little something to let me know that you would be thinking of me and holding me and my family in your thoughts and prayers. That gift card helped to feed my family when the idea of cooking was so far beyond my emotional reach. I never saw you after that, but I know this to be true. If it were not for all of you, I might have simply gotten in the car and tried to drive myself home. I wasn't thinking straight, if I was thinking at all. If it were not for you, I don't know what I would have done in those first raw moments of overwhelming shock, anguish, and grief. But I thank God every day I didn't have to find out. Your kindness, your compassion, your willingness to help a stranger in need have stayed with me until this day. And no matter how many times my mind takes me back to that horrible life-altering moment, it is not all darkness because you reached out to help. You offered a ray of light in the bleakest moment I have ever endured. You may not remember it, you may not remember me, but I will never, ever forget you. And though you may never know it, I give thanks for your presence and humanity each and every day. This is the world we like to live in. This is the world we do live in. Compassion. Let's 
just sit together for a moment. Love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. The Dalai Lama. for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.